0: Hey, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK. On the show today, author Hugh Ryan tells us how the rise of queer life in Brooklyn mirrored the ascension of the borough itself.
1: And so you get these sort of layers and layers and layers of people who are coming to Brooklyn because of its city nature, because you can be queer here, and because of these other queer artists who are here already.
0: Before there was pat, poppy juice, and bubble tea, there were the saloons around the Navy Yard, the boardwalks of Coney Island, and the St. George Hotel. In his new book, When Brooklyn Was Queer, Hugh Ryan does a deep dive into Brooklyn's LGBT history, from the publication of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass to the Stonewall Riots. He joined us recently to talk about the inverts, fairies, drag queens, and kings whose legacies helped shape the queer Brooklyn of today. Here's that conversation. So, Hugh, it seems like sometimes I don't know any straight people in Brooklyn. So the title of the book, when I first saw it, struck me as funny, When Brooklyn Was Queer. Um, Tell me a little bit about why that title. Brooklyn is queer. Was it always?
1: Absolutely. Brooklyn is very queer right now. In fact, one of the things I say in the book is that it's probably queerer than it's ever been. uh, And that that queerness is more diverse, more exciting, more spread throughout the borough than it had been. But when I was growing up, you wouldn't think about Brooklyn and queer history or even queer present in the same sentence. Uh, Barely did people think about Brooklyn at all or queer history. And so I wanted to highlight that sort of disjuncture in, in time, but also that there was a time, particularly in the 1920s and 30s, when people from Manhattan and all over the country and world sought out Brooklyn to have particular kinds of queer experiences, sort of the same way we might think about going to the West Village or to Harlem today.
0: Um, you have a, a quote early on where you say, we are everywhere, but we're some places a whole hell of a lot more than we are others. <laughs> and it seems like Brooklyn was one of those epicenters of queer culture um, at various points throughout its history.
1: Absolutely. and uh, uh, particular, parts of Brooklyn, too.
0: Yes. And so you talk a little bit about the development um, of Brooklyn as a city in its own right and later a borough and how... The rise of queerness or the the coming into being of a queer identity sort of mirror each other. Tell me a little bit about some of those neighborhoods that first emerged as engines for Brooklyn, the city, and as also areas where queer people like to hang out.
1: Well, two of the most important in both senses uh, were Brooklyn Heights and the sort of downtown Brooklyn area where around where we are now. You know, the stuff that was closest to Manhattan and the Fulton Ferry Landing, which is really the the heart of Brooklyn as a city and had been for for you know going back over a century. And then Coney Island, down at the other end of the borough, which was an entertainment destination going back you know, really until the mid-1800s, early 1800s, at one point for the upper class and then eventually for all Brooklynites and all New Yorkers, those two areas have some of the most uh, dense and deep queer history that we can find in Brooklyn.
0: And you talk about the importance of the waterfront, um, in particular the area around Brooklyn Heights all the way to the Navy Yard. Uh, Why was that such an important area?
1: The waterfront was a place where people could get jobs. All people. I mean, the waterfront is what drives Brooklyn's growth as a city. When the Erie Canal opens in the early 1820s, it transforms Brooklyn into a major port. In fact, by the end of like, you know, within like a decade or so, New York City is seeing more shipping than New Orleans, Boston, and Baltimore combined. So suddenly Brooklyn is this really important place, and the waterfront is what causes that. And the waterfront is where everyone goes to get jobs. And in particular, certain kinds of jobs were more open or more attractive to queer people. And that's what I track inside the book is these five classes of jobs, sailors, sex workers, artists, entertainers, and female factory workers. And those five careers popped up over and over again as I was doing this history. And I realized it was because they enabled queer people to live queer lives and to have those lives recorded in a way that they couldn't in other places or in other jobs because these jobs gave them freedom and gave them money and places to live and ways to find one another.
0: So your book looks at this sort of distinct time period, beginning with the publication of Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. And by the way, he was a tremendous snack, which I did not realize. <laughs> I sort of think of him as like white bearded. But you publish this, this illustration of him with Leaves of Grass, where he's sort of like young and strapping and standing akimbo.
1: Yeah. And not just he's not just attractive, but he knows it too. You he know, you does. kind of get this sense that he's like... I yeah. sort of, I
0: looked away and it's just a book. <laughs> um, and then you, you chart queer Brooklyn up until the Stonewall Riots. Um, so let's start at the the beginning. In the the beginning of this time period that you're looking at, sort of like mid 19th century, was there an understanding of homosexuality or what it meant to be gay or gender queer?
1: No, not anything like what we would think today, really. In fact, the word homosexual isn't even coined until the 1860s, and then it's in Germany, so it, you know, it takes a while to get over here. There was an understanding of, of queerness, but it was based in gender, right? So the people who kind of stood out that you might have noticed as queer people were, you know, mannish women or effeminate men, and even those kind of occupied a different place than what we would think of today. But the idea of, of homosexuality, of, of sexuality in general, is this thing that's separate from your gender, that didn't exist. And that's what's exciting about Walt Whitman is that in writing Leaves of Grass, he was trying to write down this community of men who had sex with men and emotional interactions with men, right? Because this is the Victorian era. So men are spending all their time with men. Women are spending all their time with women. So already we have this homosociality. But what Whitman wanted to do was to memorialize these Uh, mostly white working-class men that he was meeting along the waterfront and having sex with. And to do that, he needed to come up with words because there weren't any. So he referred to those men as his camarados or comrades. And he referred to their love as adhesiveness. And he actually starts to come up with all of these uh, ways to memorialize it and talk about it, particularly the calamus flower, which is a a river reed that grows wild in Brooklyn and, and all over the place, he said, should be the symbol for young men to move, use with one another. And you can give every other flower to everyone else, but you should only give the calamus to them that love as I myself am capable of loving. And I think that's kind of amazing, right? It shows that there was something emerging that needed to be named.
0: Right. And I love that so many of those names uh, were come up with by poets. You mentioned an amazing number of poets throughout the book. And oftentimes you say there isn't a historical record of um, queer community, especially among communities of color mm-hmm. or other communities that were otherwise disenfranchised and maybe didn't have written records. Um, but there always were poets. And so time and time again, you return to the language of poetry to talk about um, at least individual queer experience in Brooklyn.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think that those poets, you know, again, Walt what, what Whitman knew this intrinsically and and said, I'm sending my poetry out in the world to find others. And he succeeded. And those others would find still more others. So Hart Crane harkens back to Walt Whitman. Uh, Carson McCullers, not a poet, but a poetic author and someone who really loved language harkens back to both Crane and Whitman when she's here. Marianne Moore, who knows Hart Crane, Uh, And publishes him, although they don't really get along in the 20s, moves to Brooklyn. And by the time she leaves, her poetry references, uh, Hart Crane's poetry, referencing the Brooklyn Bridge. And so you get these sort of layers and layers and layers of people who are coming to Brooklyn because of its city nature, because you can be queer here, and because of these other queer artists who are here already.
0: You talk about this um, sort of incestuous relationship among all of these amazing creatives, uh, particularly during a time period in the 40s. Can you tell me about The February House?
1: February House is kind of one of my favorite parts of the book and one of the few things I actually knew about Brooklyn's queer history before I started writing it. During World War II, it was a group of people who came together on mid Street, which is in Brooklyn Heights, uh, although the house is no longer there, And George Davis, who was an editor and writer, had this vision, he said. He said he had a dream of a house where his friends could live together and write and afford to live and live safely and live in the way they wanted to live, which was hard a lot of the time in Greenwich Village. You didn't have the money and maybe a lot of people were watching you. And so he gathers together this incredible group, W.H. Auden, who he published in America, Gypsy Rose Lee, who he was friends with when they were teenagers, Carson McCullers, who he again also published here in America. Uh, All these other people come through the house at different times. So uh, Richard Wright, the author, lives there at one point. Uh, Patrick Pierce, the tenor, and his uh, partner live there. It's just this amazing collection of people for about two years during World War II, and they host this international group of artists and intellectuals because it's the war going on, right? And everyone is fleeing Europe, and they're all ending up in America. And because of February House, many of them came to Brooklyn. In fact, one Swiss writer says that, All art and culture that I saw in America came out of that one house and that's it. It's just incredible to see what came from all of these queer people living together. And and in fact, that's a hallmark of queer history is that queer people find each other and they find ways to live together and create safe space.
0: And you mentioned that really the heyday of February House was only a year, maybe a year and a half, but the amount of collaboration and art that emerged um, has impacted our cultural landscape to this day.
1: All these people you wouldn't even think about. Oliver Smith, the set designer, lived there for just a short While His cousins had lived there before him, and so he moved in. He was kind of the baby of the family. You know, he was like 22 or 23. And he set up a little garret in the attic, and he would paint watercolors of the Brooklyn Harbor. And because there were all these artists coming through, he met really important collaborators who enabled him to have this huge career, so folks like Lincoln Kirstein. And that is what prompted him to go on to make the sets for West Side Story and On the Town and all these shows that he would many, many years later say, the sets are actually more Brooklyn than Manhattan. I but love that he don't said that, tell that anyone. West Side
0: Story, where <laughs> yeah. he's like, West Side Story is actually Brooklyn, you guys. Right.
1: And On the Town is really based on the adventures they had on Sand Street, which is where all the sailors from the Brooklyn Navy Yard used to hang out. And there were tons of bars where you would go to, some straight bars, some, uh, you know, they weren't called gay bars. They weren't queer bars. It was these mixed spaces where all kinds of people might meet up. And that was what this play was based on. And yet that's totally forgotten today because we don't look to the history of Brooklyn and we don't look to the queer history of these shows to really see what they are.
0: So you mentioned queer bars, and I think that there's sort of a conception that pre-Stonewall, um, gay people who met in gay spaces, in, in particular in gay bars, were under constant threat um, from police raids and from violence. But that wasn't always the case, right? Tell me about a time where queer bars could exist without police harassment.
1: Well, it, it's funny. The best time, in a sense, in queer history for queer bars is the time that you'd think would be worse for bars in general. Prohibition. Prohibition comes in in 1920 and it ends, I believe, in 1933. And during that period, all bars were illegal and what you quickly discover is that if you make the recreational choices of straight white men illegal, the playing field is leveled for everyone. Funny
0: how that happens.
1: Right? Suddenly it becomes a big deal, you know, and and you can go to a bar. You might want to go to a queer bar because you're going to get arrested if you go to any bar, so why does it matter if you go to a queer one versus a straight one, you know? Why does it matter if the place you're hanging out in allows unescorted women? But once prohibition comes in, everything is leveled, and suddenly these bars flourish. Now, in Brooklyn, you don't see what we would call a gay bar at this time, but you do see these spaces that were mixed and that people came to knowing they could find other queer people there. And when prohibition ends, that basically dies overnight because suddenly it's just safer to go to a bar where there aren't queer people in it. And prohibition ends right at the same time that the Hayes movie code becomes really important. And that's uh, the motion picture code that, you know, sort of shuts down any displays of sexuality, any um, cursing, any uh, making fun of the clergy. All of this happens at the same time prohibition comes in. So you get this separation where now straight people don't go to queer bars and queer people are no longer permitted to appear in straight movies. And so there's this huge separation that comes after the end of Prohibition. But during that like 13-year period, there were all kinds of spaces for people to go out. Brooklyn Heights, Coney Island, Red Hook, all over Sunset Park.
0: You really sort of chart this sine wave of progression of gay rights. And one of those uh, high points is Prohibition, as you mentioned, the 20s, where there's a lot of freedoms. There's also something known as the pansy craze during that time period. Um, And then that takes a nosedive at the end of Prohibition. Um, Another one of those high points is World War II. Tell us why that was such a great time for queer people and then what happened when World War II ended.
1: The war was a huge mobilization, right? So you have people all over the country moving to urban centers for the war. Uh, They might have moved there because they were in the military. They might have moved there for civilian work. A lot of different reasons. They might have moved there as refugees. But you get the streets being flooded with uh, mostly single men, but also single women. And when those men go off to war, the home front is left with a lot of single women. So you kind of have a little bit of what was happening in the Victorian era, these homosocial pools of men and women interacting together, spending all of their time together. And now, particularly by 1940, by World War II, America was— had a growing awareness of queerness, you know? And and like you said, the 30s was kind of a a time when things were getting a little bit worse steadily, uh, the end of prohibition, the Hayes movie code, all of that. And it's ratcheting up. That level of homophobia is increasing as people become more and more aware of homosexuality. But with the war, there's not time for that, right? You don't have time to be persecuting the brothel down the street when you have a war in Europe and you're afraid that some of the sailors you need for that war are in that brothel. And so suddenly there's this sort of liminal space that opens up and there are all these jobs again, right? That's what takes us out of the Depression is the war work. And that war work was prevalent for queer people who were often poor. And so it, it, it changes everything for five years. And then it ends. And as soon as it ends, we go right back to that progressing homophobia of the 1930s. Uh, all the women who are working in factory jobs are let go. So right off the bat, I have these lesbian narrators talking about working in the Brooklyn Navy Yards who were like, we were given two weeks and told our jobs were done. And that was it. There was no choice.
0: Get back into the skirts. Yep.
1: Go into the kitchen. And if you didn't want to do that, you had very few options. I had one woman uh, who actually takes her grandfather's ID and pretends to be a 16-year-old boy to get a job as a machinist because she can't figure out any other way to continue working with the machines that she loves and all of these people in the army they start putting in these introductory uh, sort of speeches that they would give to all the recruits and they're fiercely homophobic I mean they're they're really offensive and they tell you not only does homosexuality exist but you have to watch for it at all times among other people and in yourself and so they teach people you have to patrol yourself at all times and so something like going to a gay bar which might not have mattered 15 years earlier in terms of your own sexual orientation, now is suddenly a a sign that there is something wrong with you. It
0: does really require constant vigilance to stay straight.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Um, (laughs) Did you find it a particular challenge to include the stories of queer people of color uh, in this book? Was it harder to research?
1: It was harder in a lot of ways. And one of the things that I discovered right off the bat that shocked me was how white Brooklyn was historically and how racist at many times. I mean, before 1940 and after the end of slavery in New York state, Brooklyn was basically never less than 97 percent white. And at certain parts in time, it was as much as 99 percent white. So first off, you've got the pool of history for people of color is much smaller in Brooklyn. And then within that the records of people of color were routinely destroyed or not kept. So you have Weeksville, which is an important uh, neighborhood for black New Yorkers, black Brooklynites in the 1800s. We know that two newspapers were founded in Weeksville. Only one issue of one of them has ever been found, right? And the majority white newspapers at the time didn't really cover what was happening in Weeksville. So we know that Alice Ruth Moore Dunbar Nelson, the writer, moves to Brooklyn in the late 1800s to work in Weeksville in one of the schools there. And she's this incredible thinker, writer, activist. She lives in Brooklyn Heights with another um, woman of color uh, named Virginia Earl Matthews, who's also in the Uplift Movement. And we know from her later diaries that she was having sex with women of color who were also in the Uplift Movement, these kind of middle-class black women who were educational reformers but we don't know what she did in Brooklyn because we don't have diaries from that time and we don't know what happened in Weeksville because the reports have all been destroyed and so it leaves these lacunas where we can sort of say she moved here to come to Brooklyn to come to a city to have this kind of life and it's also where she met her husband so she may not have been having as much queer sex as she did later But we can point to her as a sort of indicator for some of this history, but the records just aren't there. And the same thing is true of performers of color, right? So Florence Hines is this really important drag king at the end of the 19th century. And yet, unlike the white drag kings at the time, who have reams of personal photos and articles about them in papers, I can only find one image of Florence Hines. And she was the highest paid female performer of color in America in the 19th century. It's it's insane when you actually go to look for it.
0: And Weeksville is located in sort of current-day bed East New York? Uh, Crown, right? Heights. Crown Heights. Crown Heights. Yep. And it was, a, it was a black community in
1: yep, Brooklyn. a very strong, very important black community. And uh, there's a great book about it by Judith Wellman, and she says that it was not just a community for black Brooklynites, but that it served as a place of refuge for black New Yorkers from all over the boroughs, particularly when uh, there would be race riots in Manhattan or in other places. People would come to Brooklyn for safety, and they would come to Weeksville.
0: So I want to come back to an earlier time period. Let's get back to the Victorians a little bit. You mentioned that it was a very homosocial society uh, that men and women occupied these very separate spheres. Um, And during this time period, there wasn't an understanding of homosexuality as we know it today. As you mentioned, uh, it was more about gender identity. And as long as you were conforming with your gender identity, like all was good. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it was viewed as uh, part of a masculine instinct or energy to not be able to control your sexuality, right? Can you talk to me a little bit about how that played out for homosexual men?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Men were seen as these sort of violent animal beings full of sexuality and rambunctiousness and kind of uncontrollable to a certain degree, and, and women were supposed to be you know, the pacifiers who sort of brought that down and, and helped men control themselves. And it wasn't necessarily good for a man to have sex with another man, but it didn't mean you were a different kind of person. It sort of meant that you had had a failing of a certain kind, a failing that was gendered, that was moral. He but,
0: drinks too much. He has sex with men sometimes.
1: Yeah. And often those two things were connected. He drinks too much and then he has sex with men and it's an accident. Uh, there's this great case, oh, great is maybe the wrong word, uh, but there's this boxer, Young Griffo. He's this Australian prize fighter. Uh, even today he's counted as one of the most important boxers in the 20th century and he has a gym in Coney Island and he's arrested for raping a 12-year-old boy in the gym. And throughout the country, there are almost no reports that tell the truth about what happened. They all just say it was an assault. Uh, the judge in the case sentences him to one year in jail and actually says from the bench, look, I don't think there's anything wrong with you. I think you're just full of animal nature and you can't help yourself.
0: Also, you're a great boxer. I also, think he's a says, great boxer. You know, he's a great lacrosse player with a bright future ahead of him.
1: Absolutely. And not only did it was it about your future, but it was about your masculinity. Boxing is the most manly of sports, and that meant a lot for him to be a Boxer sort of said, well, he can't be queer because their understanding of queer meant you were effeminate, uh, you were probably even bodily, they felt, not fully a man. Their idea of queerness sort of combined our ideas of homosexuality, being transgender, and being intersex. And so it just actually was not possible for them to understand a man like Young Griffo as queer. It, it didn't make any sense on a bodily level. He just wasn't. And so they had to sort of figure out all of these other understandings about it. And the same went for women too. A very feminine woman, there's a number of actresses at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, who basically traveled the country with each other for, you know, 10 years, uh, going to lesbian parties, dressing in, you know, mannish ways. But because they're actresses and because their public persona as performers is, you know, feminine, taking on feminine roles, nobody says anything.
0: You talk a little bit about this sort of Boston marriage and about how we're never quite sure because of the, the way that Victorian women were viewed as being in this domestic sphere and allowed to have passionate feelings. We're never really sure how queer some of these writers are.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Because we have an idea of queerness right now that rests on two things historically. Either real genital to genital contact that we can point to and be like, no, they absolutely had sex. We know it. There are like pictures. Right.
0: Homosexual yeah. genital contact.
1: <laughs> We've got it here. Or shame. You have to be ashamed of the relationship you're in. And for some of these women in Boston marriages, not only weren't they ashamed, it was seen as appropriate and right. It was a strong relationship between two women at a time when women were expected to have strong relationships with one another. And when we look back on it and try to demand that either they be ashamed of their love or we can prove that they had genital contact, we're missing the point. This was an incredibly queer relationship. It was a relationship between two women that was their life partnership in many cases. And whether or not they had sex doesn't really matter, I think, in defining it as a queer relationship. But we're sort of obsessed with that because that's the only way we understand queerness now.
0: So we've talked about this sort of sine wave of progress uh, and then oppression. Mm-hmm. And it seems right now, as we've both talked about, that we are in a real queer moment in Brooklyn. Uh, new queer spaces are emerging all the time. It's more inclusive. Um, you know, people of color, trans people. It's just a different world than uh, the queer spaces that you mentioned of the 19th century, Mm -hmm. obviously. Um, Are you at all afraid that we are also coming up to a period of backlash from a historical perspective?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I worry that we're living in the Weimar Republic every day, which is (laughs) is terrifying. In fact, I read a report just this morning saying that a new attitude study towards LGBTQ people came out and there had actually been a fall in the percentage of Americans who supported equal protection uh, laws, and particularly among young Republicans. There was a a large drop of, I think it was like 10 points, and it's been steadily tracking upwards. Now, the drop overall was small, but it worries me to watch this drop among young Republicans because that sort of suggests that the party as a whole, which already was not, you know, (laughs) that excited about queer people, is becoming less so. And when you have a a situation where there are days where I wake up wondering if we're slipping into fascism, to watch that party as a whole, even the younger members, reject queerness further and further and further is scary, right? And we don't know what's going to happen next. I think we're one Reichstag fire away from, you know, descending into fascism. And maybe that's just because I'm a pessimist because I study history. But it it does scare me. I have to admit it does.
0: As a historian, are there any sort of canaries in a coal mine that we should be on the lookout for?
1: I mean, I think that one thing that I saw over and over again in looking at the lives of queer people is that as fascism rises generally, we don't do very well. You know, that it might seem like things are okay, but eventually there's a hard drop. Throughout the 30s, there are narrators who are like, everything is still great. It's going so well, you know, but you're like, oh, we're approaching a cliff. Uh, And so that's the thing that I really look for is is just generally how are we dealing with difference? How are we dealing with authoritarianism? Uh, The more authoritarian we get and the more xenophobic we get, the more worried I get.
0: Let's talk about this idea of being born this way, Mm -hmm. which was a real rallying cry um, in sort of the the most recent LGBT rights movement where, you know, love is love and we're born this way. Um, But actually, when you look back in time, that is a view also espoused by eugenicists. Mm -hmm. So talk to me a little bit about the research around um, eugenics that you did for this book.
1: The eugenics stuff is fascinating in the most horrifying sense of the word, right? I think we associate eugenics with the Holocaust and with those scientists and that anti-Semitic movement. And it lets us forget how prevalent eugenics was here in America. Our presidents, the heads of major corporations and major universities all sat on eugenics boards. They all believed in this. And, and eugenics said that personality traits and, and basically everything about us is in the body and it's inheritable and you can find it in the body. So they would believe all these strange things like the presence of gynecomastia which is what they would call breast tissue in men that suggested that you were a criminal why they never really explain Uh, if you couldn't whistle that suggested that you were homosexual and they had all of these theories and the same doctors who were invested in determining what it meant to be queer were at the same time the people who were determining what it meant to be white. This was the moment, you know, the 1920s, uh, the Great Migration, large numbers of black Americans are moving up from the South to New York, and suddenly scientists are really concerned about whiteness. Before this time, whiteness is this kind of fractured identity where the Irish, the Southern Italians, Eastern European Jews, eh, Really, white. Yeah, I, my grandparents came to New York in that time period, and we have little advertisements that they save that say things like uh, boarding house, no Irish or dogs. Right. Right. And so there was this sort of fractured white identity. But these eugenicists get together and they say, OK, we've got to protect the white race and protecting the white race means two things to them. One, you have to protect from intermarriage with people of color, particularly black people. So they're the external threat. They're gonna intermarry and degrade the white race that way. But queer people are the internal threat, right? We're the end product of too much um, bad breeding, the wrong people having sex, poor people having sex, stupid people having sex. And it ends with these sort of, you know, enervated feminine men and masculine women who are going to destroy the race. And so these doctors define what we think of as sexuality today. They're the ones who write this down. And they're at the same time defining what we think of as race. And it's it's white supremacy that really motivates both the, the racism and the homophobia that comes out of this medicalized movement in the 19-teens and 1920s. And those things still are with us today. I mean, we laugh at the idea that, you know, whistling determines whether or not you're homosexual. But certainly I know a lot of people who think you can recognize a gay person when you see one. You know, that hasn't gone away.
0: You um, just name checked a song, actually, in your description of this masculine women, feminine men, (laughs) which is a song that I uh, YouTubed thanks to your book and laughed uncomfortably all the way through. Will you tell me about this hit from the 20s?
1: Sure. It's actually a really fun song. I recommend people go look it up. It was recorded by a number of different artists. Uh, It's written by two people, one of them named Jimmy Monaco, who was a piano player at Coney Island, which is probably where he met these masculine women and feminine men. And the song is kind of this gently mocking piece about how, you know, today people are wearing their hair weird and grandpa is shopping for perfume and you can't tell your aunt Flo from your Uncle Phil at a distance. And it's all strange and it's all weird, but it's also kind of fun. And it's kind of silly. The song makes gender transgression. A sign of modern life, which it always is, right? Being queer is always on the horizon. Everyone's always talking about how it's the future. It's it's going to be what happens. I'm
0: going to be queer and caramel.
1: Yep. And it's good or bad. You know, it's both both directions. But it's always like 15 years away. And so the song kind of talks about that. But it also makes it relatable, which I think working at Coney Island as a piano player would have because you would have seen drag queens and drag kings and gay men and lesbians. And you kind of would have gotten to know them a little bit. And so I think the song was kind of doing that for America, right? And they're
0: engaged. Engaging in such perverse gender-bendy behaviors like women smoking and men taking care of children.
1: I mean, horrifying, I'm right? I'm touching my
0: pearls. <laughs> well, the book is called When Brooklyn Was Queer. I really enjoyed it. Um, and I think you will, too. <laughs> uh, so, Hugh, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Um, thank you for having me. This is really fun.
0: That's the show for today. See you next time. 112BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hoggsegg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Isham.